Well, you could argue that uh, it's kind of a, I guess it's kind of in a strange way autobiographical. You know, not not that it not that anyone stole from me a, a screenplay, not that I wrote anything that was so good that someone would want to steal it. But you know, but it, it I guess uh, I looked at it. The whole movie is about failed dreams and mediocrity. So you could argue that I felt mediocre from the time I got here. I think, you know, I, I reached for the stars. I found out that I couldn't even get off the ground to reach the stars because I didn't, I didn't really understand just how much, I, under, I underestimated just how much work and hustle and talent you actually have to have to make it. Maybe not so much talent, because obviously there are untalented people that are successful in, in, the, in the industry. And, um, and uh, and basically, I had a friend that was always paranoid about the things that she would create, and she was paranoid to the point where even if we went to a copy store, oh, what if what if the clerk is looking at my ideas? What what if you know what like do you think that sort of thing happens? Yeah, and I'm like, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, that's she's really out of her mind, you know. Another inspiration was there was a, a Simpson episode. I don't remember which one where Homer, I guess it's Homer inside of a copy uh, store, and he, he kind of walks by uh, the comic book guy. He's at a copier and he's like this, and he's like, excuse me, are you looking at my screenplay about a robot that runs for president or something like that? You know, I can't remember what it was, but I'm thinking that that's it. That's what I'm talking about, that kind of paranoia. That's what LA is like. Everyone's paranoid like that, with good reason. But not everyone's gonna get stolen from, you know what I'm saying? Not everyone's worthy to get stolen from. I'm not saying I am, but you know. And so then it all came together. What if, what if someone who was not very talented, which I sort of modeled after myself, even though I think I'm more talented than Ray Balfi, the character in the movie, you know, but um, what if someone who was not very talented thought that he, he, he underestimated the, the journey to success, just like so many of us do that come to LA. And he thinks it's that easy to just write a screenplay and someone's going to buy it and give him millions of dollars. That's what he thought was going to happen. And, you know, he starts putting out a shopping list and uh, as to what he's going to buy as soon as someone gives him that $10 million payday. And it turns out he gets rejected a uh, hundred times and he's ready to die because his dream has died hard. But then he finds out that someone stole it from him and actually turned it into a movie. And so that's how the whole screenwriter thing came about. But of course, I wanted to make the movie much, much less about screenwriting. The movie's really not about screenwriting. It's just more about this valley of mediocrity and all of these people with all of their failed dreams. Other artists go through this all the time. Stand-up comedians, musicians, specifically composers, they, they think they're gonna be ripped off all the time. You know, and, and, and of course it does happen uh, by way of them taking your idea and modifying it so so that it's just slightly not your idea anymore and then they'll, they'll be able to cite, they'll say, no, your idea is more like this and ours is more like this, you know. And, and, and the things that writers will relate to, or any artist, is all the rejections. That, that's real. Everybody goes through that. When you get rejected that first time, you say, oh, okay, well, it's just one rejection. Okay, well, let's just five rejections. Oh, well, it's just, you know, that stuff's very, very real. Everybody will be able to relate to that. And, and the same thing with festivals. You go through the same thing with festivals. Okay, well, this festival didn't accept me, but I'm sure another one will, you know. It's part of the fun, you know, because it's, it's kind of like an art, bad art imitating bad life. So 
you could argue that Boogie the dog, which is the main character in the dog's meow, is Ray. Ray uh, uh, Boogie the dog is someone that wants to fit in with the cats. So you could argue that the cats is uh, uh, symbolic of, of Hollywood. You know what I'm saying? And then Boogie is this imposter in a cat costume trying to blend in and he can't. You know what I'm saying? But then at the end, there's this big happy ending. But then, of course, we all know what happens in the actual movie in, in Dreaming Hollywood, as opposed to what happened. The dog's meow ends with a happy ending. Many people fall into drug dealing, unfortunately. Or, fortunately, depending on, on what drug it is, of course. You know, <laughs> you know. But, uh, but the product, the product, I didn't give it a specific name, and no, it's not based on any particular one. The product was just... The, 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 the mystery foils, uh, bits of wrapped foil, that was just a placeholder for whatever drug you happen to think it is. You know, there was even a scene where I had a guy lighting it, but oh, that was only because a lighter lighting something looked good in that shot. But that doesn't, I don't, I don't know if that's how people take the product or not. You know, but, uh, but, the, but the product was obviously a symbol of, of death for, and, and the cause of much of the violence in the valley. So um, there's a nice monologue that Maureen, the prostitute Maureen says about the, she has this interesting rationale where she talks about, you know, the product is now in our hands. You know how many people have died just to get the product in our hands? We should honor them by snorting or whatever, or by ingesting or consuming this product. You know, that's an interesting rationale on her part. It's like, it's like if you claim you're a vegetarian and someone hands you a hamburger, you say, I'm a vegetarian. Yeah, but the animal's already dead. There, there, there's, there's no moral, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's no moral conflict there. Animal's already dead. So eat it. Or else the, or else the, the animal's flesh goes to waste. So that's kind of what that monologue was about with her. It's, it's an interesting rationale. Rudy Aquanicchio, which is the big uh, king of the valley, uh, as far as the criminal underworld, you know, he came to LA with dreams of being uh, a, a singer, a songwriter, and he, he, Rudy, was singing a lot of these very uh, tepid uh, coffee house kind of ballads on an acoustic guitar, and uh, you know, again, someone who comes in like a lamb and ends up like a lion. You know what I'm saying? So he comes into the valley. He comes to L.A. Rejected at some point in his career because his song writing career never takes off and then he ends up condemned to the valley to become um, An overlord of the criminal of the criminal world so and then you have Maureen Which is the prostitute? Okay, she's the sweet poly purebred of the valley and Ray idealizes her as you know, that's this perfect woman but, you know, she obviously has a past, and uh, she tried to be a rock star herself. She still makes demos. They're low-quality demos, and she thinks she's still going to be a rock star, but she's wasting away as a prostitute. You know, and, and the Ray, part of his delusion is he thinks that once he gets his million-dollar paycheck, he'll be able to pay for her for the rest of her life. You know, um, and, uh, and then you have uh, the character of Duque, Detective Duque. Detective Duque wants to be a father, or thinks that he wants to be a father. But, uh, I mean, I might get in trouble for what I'm about to say, but a lot of people become parents for the wrong reasons, okay? 
Here's a case in point with you have Detective Duque. He still has not figured out who he is. He still has a temper problem. He has a drug problem. He's jaded by the streets and by this life of crime that he's constantly witnessing. And he's not ready to be a dad. He's not really, really ready to be a dad. And so he thinks he's doing the right thing throughout the movie. Um, but, and and what, he, what he thinks he's doing right, he thinks it's going to help get his uh, baby's mama back to him. But of course, we'll see that struggle when people watch the movie, they'll see what happens. There's a lot of irony throughout this story. That, that's a perfect example. Here's a guy that doesn't need to dream at all, but he's clearly mediocre. He, he, he was likely born into wealth, and, uh, he, and he went on to, be, he wants to be even more rich. And in Hollywood, if you want the real glamour, it's not enough that you're rich. He wanted to be part of the movie industry. So he starts a production company that makes all these, again, mediocre films. These half-assed films, uh, he hires his subordinates, are people with dreams, of, and dreams and schemes of their own. And then we'll see if those dreams and schemes backfire or not. And uh, yeah, it, that's the unfortunate thing. And he's kind of like the God archetype, you know. Whereas Rudy Aquanicchio Rudy is more like the, the devil, the, imp, the impish one uh, in the story. And uh, yeah, it's, that's an unfortunate thing. And Hollywood's filled with tons of guys like the man. That character is called the man the big producer in the, in the Hollywood Hills, so. I actually wanted it to be someone else, and then I toured with the idea of being the annoying neighbor Delgado, the one that, uh, that talks about his baby with the colic. And, uh, and then my DP and my, my co-producer, Dirk Matthews, the guy that plays uh, Ray Balfi, they were just annoying the hell out of me, telling me, just, just be Telegar, you, you are Telegar. And I'm like, okay, you know, so. <laughs> I understood him enough, you know, I mean, that's who I was, right? I was a down-and-out writer, so I thought I, I thought I did all right. I thought I did, you know, I don't think I am a great actor, but I thought that for that role, I, I did okay. Back when I was a bartender, I, we, we, a lot of, me and a lot of restaurant employees would party after our shifts, and it wasn't unheard of to just see one of the guys talking, and all of a sudden, <laughs> it was like, whoa! You know who Sidney Pollock is? Great director. He always made sure he gave himself a little part in the movies, and he was always great. And I, would, I, I strive to be like a Sidney Pollock. You know, I write a little scene for me, a little scene or two. And the aesthetic, I had a, the big challenge was, especially, this was very scary for me as a first timer. Um, how do you make everything look bleak, but not making it look so ugly that it takes people out of the movie? So. I tried to make sure that the characters were as animated as possible within these surroundings. So, um, you know, every, everything felt bleak. You know, the, the, the shot, the landscape shots, everything's very dusty and you're hearing uh, this lonely wind. And uh, the apartments or the little studio apartments where people live is, is just nasty and stained and, <clears throat> and unkempt. And, um, and so um, I had to make sure that it was like that for all the scenes that took place in the valley. Um, and then the only time that it got a little colorful was when they were up in the hills. You know, Actually, when I think about it, the only parts of the man's mansion that we see are the parts where Rudy's character goes through. And those rooms, those rooms are also desolate. 
and, and bleak. So Eraserhead's, Eraserhead was like, as far as tone, yeah. I thought about that movie. Even though yeah. uh, Dreaming Hollywood does not, didn't end up feeling like Eraserhead, but Eraserhead's a perfect example. Like everything was really bleak, you know, everything was really a hopeless feeling. But he made sure that everyone was really kooky in every scene and, you know, that, that was a fantastic movie, a big inspiration. Same with Barton Fink. Okay, Barton Fink was also a big inspiration. Same kind of deal. You have a, you have a, a, a screenwriter cooped up in this tiny, you know, compact uh, hotel apartment room. And, uh, you know, same kind of thing. So, Monty Python. They would, you, they would show, I mean, all of those guys in Python, they were, they lived through the, the, the air attack from the Nazis and everything. And so a lot of their comedy, a lot of their comedy bits, set pieces took place on battlefields with, with people amputated and dismembered and, you know, and they found humor in all that. They figured out a way to make people laugh and they were, they were geniuses at that, you know. It just goes to show you there's comedy in everything, you know. The very first time I ever experienced a movie that, that was classified as dark comedy or black comedy or whatever was The World According to Garp. And I think that that was the first time where I, I saw like all these tragic events and somehow the movie was still humorous. And I remember saying, wow, this is a whole, like it just opened up everything. I was like, wow, how interesting that you could, you know, you know, you could just make, make a joke or make light of something that was so horrific in, in, in that movie. Uh, I wish I had read the book, but you know, that movie opened up my mind quite a bit. The movie did not, end, aesthetically, the movie did not end up the way I envisioned it in my head, but because we were so compromised because of budget because a location fell through, whatever. So we had to improvise on the fly. So we lucked out quite a bit, you know, and so we would show up to a location that we rented, something would go wrong, we'd say, okay, well, let's use this room instead. And luckily it fit in with the, you know, this whole scheme of, of the rest of the movie. Yes, we did storyboard for the most part, but there were some scenes where, that were real easy, that it was easy for me to communicate to the DP, you know, mid here, mid here, then close up, you know, like we didn't have to storyboard the whole thing, but yeah, much of it was storyboarded, yeah. Yeah, um, the most so-called design that went into the movie, deliberate design, was in Ray's apartment. That's actually my apartment. That we had some guy come in and uh, seal all the windows to make it look like it was this windowless, small, tiny uh, studio apartment. And, uh, it, yeah, that, and so we shot there, we shot seven, we had seven shooting days in there, and then everything else was kind of by accident, you know, like, my favorite accident in the movie was, there's a Christmas room scene featuring uh, Rudy Aquanicchio. We were in some place that, uh, for whatever reason, they had, like, a backdrop of, like, a castle staircase, a backdrop that showed a castle, a castle lobby or whatever, the entrance area, with this beautiful staircase. And he's in front of it, and it looks amazing. It's like, whoa! And there's no rhyme and reason for why something like that would be there in a gangster lair, in a Christmas room or whatever. There's no rhyme and reason to have a Christmas room in a gangster lair. That, that, that's how we were. You know, I'm not ecstatic about a lot of the music that I did. I wish I'd had more time, uh, but, but whatever. But I kept it very minimalist so that if there was anything wrong with the music, you didn't notice it too badly, you know, but um, 
Yeah, you don't want a movie to come off as too maudlin, sappy, and overly sentimental. You, yeah, the, 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 that kind of stuff, I don't know, talks down to the audience. And, you know, I, I understand that there are a lot of people that respond to that, but I take no joy in, in telling a story, that kind of a story, you know. I, I just, I didn't fight it. I let the movie tell me what it wanted to feel like, you know. So if something worked, I went with it. You know, some people trying to get you to say the inflections just so and this and that, which sometimes is necessary. I, that needs to be understood. Sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes you do want someone to accent a certain word more in order to get the, the point across. But for the most part, for me, I, I would just like listen to them say it. And if it was honest and if it conveyed what I wanted, even though it wasn't exactly how I heard it in my head, I'd be like, that's fine. And you know, so the movie was, you know, like I said before, the movie came out completely different from how I envisioned it in my head. I like using the term analog, you know, when you, a music term, so which is sort of a music term, but uh, you know, you think of all those analog recordings, those imperfect recordings from the 30s, the 40s, they're beautiful. Why would you, you know, why, so that's the way I look at it. I, I say, let's think analog, you know, like it's, we, as long as we capture something honest, it doesn't matter if it's imperfect. People will, will become endeared to it. You know, it, it was a it was a, a warehouse rehearsal movie, <laughs> real homemade feeling, and and that was a, that was a big key. We we told ourselves, let's not try and be any smarter than we really are. Let's not make the movie any seem any smarter or more artistic than we really are. Just let it, you know, just let it be honest. That's it, you know. I am not what you call a literal director. Um, I, I can look at a shot, I can say, okay, here's the concept within this shot. This is what I want to convey. And then I can get the composition 80% to where I want it to go. But I rely on my DP to do the lighting because I'm not that smart at lighting. I mean, I know how to look at a shot and say it's not quite there yet, but I'm not, uh, but I don't know how to say, uh, use this kind of a bulb over here. Um, uh, use this particular lens over here. Now, of course, I know the difference between you know the, the lenses and all that stuff, and so I'll say I'll, a short lens here, wide, or a wide lens here, close up, whatever, telephoto. I can convey that, but I'm not an expert. But I know how to look at the shot and say, I don't like it quite yet, and then, then I'm able to work with the DP. The, the, the DPs typically know exactly what I'm going for, and so I rely on their minds to get that shot exactly um, how I want it. I'm more of a writer and I wish I could say to people this is the exact lens I want here you know I want this distance you know I don't always know that I rely on the DP I, I wish I was smarter like that but I'm not yet. Alex Zingaro and Adam Brandt are the two main ones and then um, Kak Lee, Andrew France and one day for one day, we had a guy named Matthew Renoir. He's the guy that shot the brawl scene. There's a big brawl scene at the end of that warehouse. He did all that, and that was a fun day. The original cut of that scene was 10 minutes, and man, what a shame we had to cut that down because we had some seriously good, ugly fighting, you know, knuckle, bare knuckle against, you know, skull kind of sounds and everything. It sounded, it didn't look great, but we had to cut it down greatly. So, so the, the first two DPs I mentioned, Alex Singaro and Adam Brandt, they were the two main ones. They shot most of the stuff. And then it was all supplemented by Cac Lee, Andrew France, and Matthew Renoir for, for other days. A lot of it was, again, a lot of luck. Some of it, a little bit of it was Craigslist, and then I'd meet an actor, 
and the actor would read the script and say, hey, I've got a friend that would be good for this. I found uh, Elliot because I spoke to a guy who answered a Craigslist ad to play Brandon, who was Rudy's right-hand man, swell guy, a guy named Elijah Bauman, great actor. And he showed me his reel. And in his reel, I saw this bizarre short film called Mono. And in it was this strange character that he was playing off of, uh, interacting with. And I'm looking at that guy, and this guy that I saw in this short film looked nothing like the way I envisioned Rudy, nothing at all. But this guy was strange enough where I said, this is the kind of guy that could be Rudy. We were so ignorant at the beginning that if we were more experienced, if we were wiser, we would have looked at the script and we would have said, we need to cut these, this cast of characters by down to a third of what is on there right now. But thankfully, we were ignorant and we just decided to press on and we made sure that every single character was in the movie. If I had to do it over again, I wouldn't have done it that way. But the first cut was two hours and 45 minutes, and, uh, and I was really heartbroken to, to know that I would have to cut everything down. And um, some scenes were completely cut. The most expensive day, the most, the most costly day to shoot is a scene that I cut down from seven minutes to literally 30 seconds. Uh, back and forth, I don't know, off and on. I have a day job, so uh, that got in the way of a lot of stuff. But um, I don't know, it took me a year and a half, I guess, to experiment. And uh, we would have little mini screenings in our living room. And, um, and the people would tell me what was working, what was not working. And it started off, I wrote, uh, it started off as a 16-page short. And it was going to be a lot more over-the-top satirical, a lot bloodier. And I showed it to Turk Matthews, the guy that it went, went on to play Ray, Ray Balfi. And I asked him, can I work out these pages with you, sh me shooting you as this character, with no intention of making him the character? Uh, I called it a live storyboard. We went and did it. I cut it together. And we're looking at it. We're like, hey, this is kind of cool. And then one day he just said to me, why don't you turn that into a, a, an entire movie, a, a feature-length movie? And I'm like, no, I can't, I, I can't do that. I, I can't make it myself, you know. And he just kept bugging me with that. And I added pages and added more until it was 120 pages. And then we said, okay, let's do it. Let's just do it. And then he talked himself into playing Ray. And he offered to pay for half the movie. I'm like, okay. And then this, this weird spell took us over. And then we were committed for the next, we were committed for the next uh, four to five years making this movie. And we didn't care. We didn't care that, you know, we were sacrificing everything. We didn't get to go out to fancy clubs. We didn't get to take vacations anymore. We didn't get to have girlfriends. We, we just somehow fell under the spell and saw that movie to the end. Well, to shoot, it took uh, a little over two years, and then everything else was the editing and the post and all that stuff. Uh, my favorite part, uh, oh, yes. The scene where I'm very happy with the dialogue is the scene with Rudy and the man, the first time we see them together in the workshop. I absolutely love that scene. Absolutely love it. For, for whatever reason, you know, I rarely pat myself on the back, but for that one, I love the dialogue. I love what Rudy says to him, how he responds. And then um, the other scene that I love is when Ray 
discover when Ray comes upon his final rejection and how he reacts. I love that scene too. You know, he he he's hallucinating a lot. All right, his mind is deteriorating as he reads these uh, rejection letters. And then finally, the one hundredth rejection letter arrives, and uh, and he is close to suicide. And he was really good in it. And I don't know, it's really hard to say, you know, and of course, uh, uh, Madeline Allen, who played Maureen, uh, Ray's love interest or lust interest, you know, pretty much all the stuff she was in was really, really good. You know, there's that real slow push in on her as she's talking about her life a little bit and, you know, she's good. Yeah. There's a scene where... Uh, Ray is slow dancing with Maureen and the shots are really tight and it's a real sexy scene and I love that scene and that scene made it all worth it for me and it shows their whole pre-sex ritual uh, you see the tenderness you see the manipulation on the side of Maureen uh, you see the vulnerability on the side of Ray and just the, the, the close-up of their eyes and their mouths and you know I just I just love love that scene and and that that one kind of makes me feel like wow that was great which one which one they all they all said they all told they all said what I needed the scenes to say so I can't I can't say that there's one that I was in particularly unhappy with or or, or especially especially happy with although I do like the Christmas the uh, Christmas room scene. Um, I think the wardrobe that Rudy had on for that scene, I think that helped a lot. The pure red and the, the derby. Um, the scenes in the apartment, I was really happy with. You learn, you can only learn by, you can only learn by being in the fight, by stepping into the ring, you know. I'm the type of guy that I, I step into the ring or the octagon and I wait to get my ass kicked, and then I come back to the corner and I say, "Okay, now I'm now I'm ready to learn how to fight." <laughs> okay, I'm saying that's that's what they've got to do. What I can say, what they're what too many people don't focus on is the movie has to be entertaining. It doesn't matter what you're trying to say. It doesn't matter if your movie is coming across as smart or serious or well shot. If it's not entertaining, you have to look at it and say. Is this scene entertaining? Is it working? Is it eliciting what it is that you want to feel? Is it gonna make the audience feel in love, or scared, or ready to fight? The scenes have to work like that. If they're not, then you have to edit it to the point where it does. If you live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and you don't wanna to come to Hollywood, that's perfectly fine. You know, you can shoot on your iPhone, you can shoot with a, you know, the cameras are relatively cheap. The, the camera that we shot on uh, only cost about two and a half K. You know, you, people can afford that. You know, they can pool their money and buy one of those and, and just write, a, a write simple, perhaps dialogue driven stuff. You know, like my dinner with Andre kind of stuff. You know, have it all take place in, an, in a living room or a bedroom, you know, just minimal amount of locations and, and just experiment and then edit it together till it feels like it's, till it feels like it's a movie, like, you know, it's entertaining and it flows and it weaves in and out nicely. Uh, that's what I would tell them to do and then enter it in festivals.
You don't have to come out to Hollywood. If I was to make another movie, I certainly wouldn't have it. I wouldn't have the screenplay be 120 pages because that whole thing that they teach you in film school about a page equals a minute, it's not true. It's not true. Don't write any more than 80 or 90 pages. That's, this is a guide, okay? And I'm not the smartest guy in the world and I'm not the most talented guy in the world. So keep in mind, this is simply a guide. You might want to not write any more than 80 or 90 pages. You know, minimal locations, minimal amount of characters. And, and if you work with talented writers, make sure the dialogue is lean. You know, don't overstate things. Don't, don't have spoon-fed lines. Don't preach things, you know. Uh, and and make, sure, make, sure it's, make sure it's a subject that, um, that is, is entertaining. You know, something putting people in peril, having people fall in love, you know, uh, having people wanting to fight, you know, a battle that they're facing, you know, stuff like that. What do I look for in actors? Wow, that is a great question. I don't know. I don't know. All I, I, I listen to them read, okay? I listen to them do a cold read. And this is what I'm about to say isn't always fair because some people are not good cold readers. But I listen to them read and I listen to see if their brains are locking into what's being conveyed by that line. Some people have no clue when you hear them read. They're just kind of like, reading it and they're, they're just kind of just saying lines and then there are some people when you're listening to the cold read they're like wow he's saying it the way I heard it in my head but that's not always fair because some people are not great cold readers and then once they get into character they're fantastic actors but but I often look out for that how they cold read I like the idea of staying mom and pop popish and only auditioning you know 10 people and you know and just say, yeah, you're good enough, you know. Like, you know, I mean, because, like I said, I really lucked out with Dreaming Hollywood. I just happened to be gifted all these amazing people that on first or second try, it was like, okay, let's work with this guy. My advice to people that come to LA to act is take the craft seriously and look at it as a craft. It isn't just about you looking hot on camera or something like that, like take serious what's going on, okay? When you look at great actors, what they are doing is not easy. It's not easy at all, okay? Sometimes people are so well suited for a role that they fall into it and then it comes across as easy, but for the most part, it is not an easy thing. So take it seriously, watch movies, rewind scenes. A lot of times I will watch a movie and if I see an impressive acting performance, I will rewind it over and over again to see what it is, why did that scene work so well? Is it, in, is it a tone in their voice, an inflection? Are they using their eyes? Are they, are they using their hands? Are they mannered? Are they holding a prop? Uh, a lot of times, me, the wannabe actor that I am, um, a lot of times I'll look at a scene to see how it works and then I'll go to a mirror and then I'll try and recreate it and I'll angle the mirror so that I'll frame myself like, like, like the way I saw the scene in the movie and, I'll, I'll, and sometimes I'll put a cell phone camera, this sounds weird, I get it, but, and I'll shoot myself to see, was I able to emulate what I just saw? And so that's kind of how much you got to get into it, you know? You have to look at all the details because acting is not easy at all.
and there are um, there are amazing character actors you, that you can study that go since the beginning of time, since the beginning of cinematic time, and you can learn a lot from them. Unfortunately, a lot of the people that come to LA are not, they think that they're serious about acting, and they're not. Just remember to lock in, hone in on people that are talented. You know what I'm saying? Look for something special. Look for someone that's, look for someone who looks like he is in charge of his own universe. That he's not trying to come across like someone else or something else. Uh, uh, when, when, don't be snobbish, you know what I'm saying? Every now and then you'll come across an actor who they'll be sitting in a nightclub and they'll be like, oh, I, read, I read these sides and the dialogue was so terrible. And, like, and I'm like, well, how did you arrive at that, that it was terrible? Well, I read this page and this one line, I was like, what a stupid line. And, I, and, I'm, and, I, and I'm looking at that person and I'm like, well, did you read the whole story? Did you put it in context? You know, you could be denying yourself something special. Read the whole thing in context. Yeah, the line, if you isolate it, may sound stupid if you heard it out on the street, but it may, it may convey something about the character perfectly. So don't be such a snob. You know, read the whole thing and absorb it all, you know. You know stuff like that. You encounter a, a lot of that from people that uh, aren't as serious about the craft as maybe they should be. And I want to say that all the loser behavior that I just described for you, I was that exact same person until I matured. And when I finally made this journey, I was no longer that person. And one of the great things about having gone through that journey is now I appreciate the artistry in everything. I'll even look at this room and say, wow, look at, look at what's cool about this room. I'll watch an episode of Columbo and I'll be like, wow, I can't, wow, that shot was great. How did they do, you know, like all these things that we take for granted and we make fun of, an episode of Three's Company, whatever. Now, and when I watch bad, when I watch bad movies, I'll appreciate them more. You know, that's, a, that's the great thing about me, the great result of me having gone through this journey is that now I'm more appreciative, which then opens up my mind and makes me a happier guy, a happier clam. Any success, of course, is welcomed, however big. Um, so, no, there isn't any particular group. Uh, people keep describing it as one day having a cult following. Well, sure, that'd be nice. Uh, I would like it to be timeless. I, I would like it if 20 years from now someone invites me to a Q&A and says, hey, you made this obscure movie back in, uh, back in the day. Uh, you know, that'd be fun. I, I've accepted that this isn't going to be some big, uh, big mainstream success. It's not, you know. Believe it or not, it comes in the form of these little victories. Okay, let's say I was not being interviewed. Let's say I was not being fussed over right now and there was no camera. If you and I were sitting here and you had just seen the movie and you're saying all these exact same things to me, the fact that you got this about the movie, you got that, those are the things that are the most meaningful. Most meaningful. When someone comes up to me and uh, based on what they express, uh, indicates to me that they paid attention and that they got it. That makes the work all worthwhile. Yeah. You are connecting with another human being. It's almost like uh, making love. Someone is connecting with something that you created and is appreciating you for it. Even when they criticize you and they tell you you did something wrong or you did something bad, that, that means a lot too. It means they're paying attention to you. 
who's totally happy with something they create, you know, so I am proud of quite a lot of it and, you know, I go off of other people's opinions and if, yes, I do love it, I have great affection for it and, and yeah, I'm proud of it, sure. I think that you have to think that you're always right, but with a little, with a little openness to, you know, listening to other people, you know, because you'd be, if you'd be, see, if I was as talented as Tarantino, there'd be no question. I'm sure that what he comes up with is correct. Uh, once I feel something, once I grab my foot, once I get my footing on an idea and I know something's going to work and if everyone, if no one else in the room gets it, I try and convince everyone to fall in line with what I'm thinking. And I'm glad I did that. I'm glad that there were plenty of moments where I had to push. The idea is to, to recruit a bunch of people that are smarter than you. That's the idea. And if you know that, you, you trust them and you go with it. I, I love music, so I'm always composing and drumming. You know, drumming is, uh, drums is my main instrument. So a perfect world for me would be Tuesdays and Thursdays filmmaking, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, <laughs> you know, doing music. But I want to prove something to myself. I want to prove to myself that I can make a shorter, much shorter, 90-minute uh, story with minimal locations, minimal characters. I need to prove to myself that I can do it. Uh, a few horror ideas, but nothing so solid that it'll last as long as 90 minutes. All I can say is that it just fills me with light when I'm doing it. The journey was a blast. The journey is the important part. That's why I would do it again, yeah. I, 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 like I, said, like I, I said earlier that I don't know if I'm going to make another one again. I'm pretty sure I'm going to attempt something. I just want to get the correct, the, the right story. But yeah, I want to go through all that again.